as we turn together to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. We are quickly approaching the end of our journey through Daniel. And then after a a little bit of a side tour in the month of March, we will pick up the book of Acts on the first week of April. But for today, our text this morning is Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It is perhaps the shortest text that we have dealt with in the book of Daniel, but it is perhaps also one of the most comprehensive and critical doctrines in all of the scripture. That is the doctrine of the resurrection and all that it entails. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word, that you would teach us of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would teach us where hope and comfort are found, that you would guide us even as we go through struggles as Daniel did. We ask all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so this morning we take up perhaps, as I've said, the shortest text in the book of Daniel that we are dealing with. But it is a text that is full of meaning as it deals with a subject that is near and dear to many of our hearts, the resurrection. What I would like us to do this morning is to examine this from the aspects that Daniel gives to us. I would like us to see God's comfort for us in the resurrection. But there is also a challenge in the resurrection. There is a challenge to our complacency. There is a challenge to our inability to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a doctrine of great comfort and joy. But it is also a doctrine of great warning for those who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I would like us to see this morning are four things corresponding to the four verses that we will deal with. First, I would like us to see the certainty of the resurrection in verse 1. The certainty of the resurrection as laid out by the Lord. And then secondly, we will examine a bit of the truth of the resurrection. 
Oftentimes we have vague notions of what it means to be resurrected or what the great resurrection is. But the Bible gives us very clear instructions about what it entails. So the certainty of the resurrection and then the truth of the resurrection. And then in verse 3 we will see the blessing that comes from the resurrection. The blessing of the resurrection. And then finally we will see where we are to have our comfort and hope and where this comes from. In verse 4, the knowledge of the resurrection. So certainty, truth, blessing, and knowledge. Let's begin then by looking at the certainty of the resurrection in verse 1. At that time, our text says, shall arise Michael, the great prince who is in charge of your people. Now, There is a chapter division here between 11 and 12. We're all reminded by it. Perhaps your Bible is like mine in which there is a very big 12 between 11 and 12. But we also need to remember that while there is a chapter division, this should not prevent us from seeing the context or looking back to chapter 11. So at that time, Michael shall arise. And what is the time? Just to refresh your memory, you remember chapter 11 gave us this endless story, seemingly, of the battle between the king of the north and the king of the south. And we went and we traced all of our Bible trivia. So we know who Berenice is, and we know who Antiochus III is, and Seleucus II is. And we traced all of that up until verse 35. And then in verse 36, we saw that there was still a king, but it was a different kind of king. It wasn't a king that did the things that Antiochus IV did. We looked and we saw how he was setting himself up against God himself, exalting himself, magnifying himself, blaspheming against God, putting aside all compassion, attacking the people of God with a viciousness. And we saw that this is perhaps... A time to come. We don't know exactly when. We don't know exactly who. That's not important for us to know. Or God would have told us. But what we do know is that this period of hostility against the people of God continues. It did not stop in the days of Antiochus IV. It did not stop in the days of the Pharisees. It did not stop in the days of the Crusades. No, it continues on to this very day as you go to school, as you go to work, as you live in your neighborhoods. Remember, we said one of the main purposes of the book of Daniel is to teach us how to live as believers in a foreign land, a land in which God is not acknowledged. So, This is, there is a great continuity with chapter 11 here. And it is the culmination of what has been talked about in terms of history. You will notice something here in verse 1. That the word time is used three times. At that time. It is a time of trouble. But at that time. This gives an air of eternity around this verse. It is the culmination of all time. The author is here trying specifically to direct us to the end of all things, the culmination of everything. And what happens is, at this time, the the people of the Lord are in great distress. They have not been delivered as yet. It seems that the only ones, you remember, in chapter 11, verse 41, who have been delivered are the enemies of the people of God. Edom, Moab, Ammon, all of these great enemies of God, they seem to be the ones getting the breaks. 
Do you ever feel like that? That it's the people who hate God. It's the people who hate religion. It's the people who hate purity. They get all the breaks. They get all the deliverance. They get all the bailouts. They get all of the oh, go-aheads. This is a time of great distress for the people of God. But I want you to notice that in this time of trouble, a time of trouble that is so bad that it has never seen its like before, there is one who watches. You see, Michael, the great prince, the great ruler, the great one, has charge of your people, Daniel. That is, the people of God. And I want you to get the imagery that the the text gives to us. Being in charge here is not the kind of being in charge that happens when you leave your home and you place one of your children in charge. And they walk around saying to their siblings, I'm in charge. You have to do what I say. No, 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 no. What's actually happening here is it says that Michael stands watch over the people of God. That's the kind of charge he has. He is watching over them, seeing what is happening. He is there to protect them. He is standing guard, we might say. God, in the greatest of our strife and our difficulties, sets his chief servants over us. Some speculate that Michael is actually the Lord Jesus Christ, because Michael means who is like God. Some speculate that he is among the chief of all of the angels. But the point here is that God spares no expense. God pulls no punches in the protecting of his people. He sets a guard over them, especially here in this time of trouble. Well, you know the cliche, right? It's always darkest before the dawn. And there's a reason why cliches are cliches. Because there's an element of truth in them. And so this time, this time of trouble, is a time that Jeremiah spoke of in chapter 30, verse 7. He calls it a time that has never been seen before. A time of great trouble and anguish. You may also know that Jeremiah 30 comes right before Jeremiah 31 in which Jeremiah recounts the great renewal of the people of God, that new covenant that God will make with them, that He will write His law upon their hearts. You see, there is a sense that it is always darkest before the dawn, and God is about to deliver His people. There is great suffering and death in this time. I believe our Lord Jesus Christ had this text in mind when He said this in Matthew 24, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. You see, this is the ultimate struggle for the people of God. If you'll permit me, this makes the difficulties at your job look like nothing. It makes the sickness sweeping through your house in waves in and then back again look like a piece of cake. It makes the struggles that we have in our nation to stand for God's law and to stand for the Lord look like child's play. It is the ultimate point of the struggle. It is the culmination of all that hates God come to fruition. And this is not just on the corporate level. 
You see, we face struggles not only corporately as a church, but we face struggles as individuals, don't we? Perhaps it's sickness. Perhaps it's doubt. Perhaps it's strife and difficulty with relationships. You see, all of these things affect us not only on the corporate level as the church, but also as individuals. And you see, what Daniel chapter 12 tells you today is, do not be overwhelmed by what is before you. It's not just that you can repeat a Bible verse that says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. It's not just that we can repeat the Bible promise that says He will never give us more than we can carry. No, we have the knowledge of the promise of God that not only has He said that, but it is true and He has set His watch over us. We are safe and secure because God pays attention to each and every one of us. He protects us. He doesn't just protect us though, He also delivers His people. Because why does Michael arise at this time? He arises at this time, first of all, I think, to remind us that we do not live in an impersonal universe. We're not at the sway of history or the fates. God acts in history just as he has acted throughout the book of Daniel. He is reminding us that he will act in the future. God wants us to know that he is in control and he is in control of us. Not just history, but us. And you see, this is yet another example of what we have seen with the fiery furnace, with the lion's den. That Michael, as the agent of God, is not there to prevent something bad from happening. He is there to deliver his people out of what is bad. That's great comfort to us when we're in the midst of strife and struggle. And who does Michael deliver? Does he deliver the most active Does he have a gold, a silver, and a bronze medalist that he delivers? And all others are lost awash in the sea of history. No. Michael delivers everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. There is not one exception. Every single one that the Lord knows is delivered. Every single one that the Lord has placed his name upon is delivered. The ones who are written in the book of life, that book of life that is described from beginning to end of the Bible, from Exodus 32 where Moses speaks of the book of life, to Revelation where we hear over and over again of the book that God has written the names of his saints in. Now, sometimes when we think about the book of life, we think about it in the wrong fashion or the wrong priority. And so when we hear phrases like blotted out of the book of life, we wonder Does this book of life have control of God? God has to do what's ever in the book. And that's not the case. You see, the names of God's people are written in the book of life because they are on His mind. Because they are engraved in the palms of the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the book of life is a bit like the census. It's there... You don't have people because the census counts them. The people are there and the census counts them to have an organization of the people who are there. And this is a sort of heavenly census, but it is a perfect census. There is no fooling God. There is no tricking Him. 
There is no saying, well, I should be in. Can't I argue my way in? No. It is only those whom God has chosen to Himself from before the foundation of the world, whom He has sent His Spirit to bring alive from death, and who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His fullness to know Him as Savior. Their names are written in the book of life. And so you see, you cannot fool God this morning. The fact that you sit here in church may fool me. It may fool others. It may even fool yourself for a time. But you cannot fool God. He knows His elect. And so oftentimes we are confronted with that and we say, well, how do I know I'm elect? How do I get into the secret mind of God? And I am reminded of the wonderful quip of the ever-quippable Spurgeon who said, do you want to know if you're elect? Believe on Jesus. Then you will know. Because only the elect believe on Jesus. Don't look down into your election. Look to the one who saves. And you will know that you are of the people of God. You will have great comfort. You will have great assurance. You will be carried through all of strife. This is the certainty of the resurrection. But there is also a great truth that we see in the resurrection here in verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, one of the things that we don't dwell on very often with the resurrection is that at the resurrection there will be a great division. There will not be all happiness at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and at the resurrection of the dead. You see, some will rise to glory in life, but others to shame and everlasting death. And no one is accepted. Some look at this text and see that Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And they say, well, maybe there are some people who don't raise now. Maybe there's a second chance. Maybe I can get a get-out-of-purgatory-free card. No. You see, the language there is actually not small. It's actually expansive. Unlike English, Hebrew does not have a word for all in the plural. You can only say all in the singular. And so if you want to speak of all in the plural, the sort of famous, we talk about this, all y'all, you have to use this word many. And so some of your translations will even use the word multitudes will arise. You see, it's a number beyond numbering. It is the multitude of multitudes. It is everyone arising to one or the other. In Isaiah, for example, in chapter 2, he speaks of all the nations flowing into the temple of God. And in the very next phrase, he says, and many peoples. Same word. The all is equal to the many. This is the one great resurrection that our Lord Jesus Christ spoke of in John chapter 5. He said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All of them will rise to one or the other. And as I believe I've said to you before, in the great resurrection, there will be no Switzerland. 
There will be no neutral place where you can stand and relax and eat chocolate and look at a clock. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. You are either receiving eternal life or eternal shame and condemnation. That is all that there is at the resurrection. Jesus understood this. That's why he says in Matthew 25, almost the same kind of phrasing. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Notice the word there, eternal punishment. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the righteous unto eternal life. You see, that is the great division. It is not only a division of God's people and God's enemies, it is an eternal division. You see, the world does not come to an end. This is what happens. There is eternity in the balances. Life everlasting is what we have. There is no peaceful end of existence. There is no being blotted out into a great conglomeration that mumbles om. No, we remain the people that God has created us, each of us individually, experiencing eternal life. This is the very first place in the Bible that that phrase is used. And it's used in a context to give us comfort in the midst of strife and struggle. Every single one will be raised, and there is no other way. There are some Bible teachers who will teach you that what happens to the wicked is that they are annihilated. They are wiped out. That God is too good and He wouldn't want them to suffer beyond that moment. And so He blots them out of existence. And that's heresy. You see, it is not the lack of existence that we face if we refuse to embrace Jesus Christ. It is eternal punishment. It is eternal shame and contempt. So if you have not sat down and thought about your relationship to your Savior, you must come to this place. Because it's not just the most miserable day that you ever needed to get through and you grit your teeth and get through it. Because as soon as you do that, tomorrow's worse. And the day after that's even worse. And you don't even want to think about next week. Because it's eternal. And notice the flavor that Daniel gives us with this. It's not just eternal death that he speaks about. He speaks about shame and everlasting contempt. Failure to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Failure to obey God leads to shame and disgrace. Have you ever been ashamed or embarrassed? Maybe you had one of those dreams where you got up, got on the bus, and went to work and forgot your pants. And you think about that in terms of shame. Maybe you struck out when the game was on the line. Maybe you printed a bulletin and it was halfway upside down. These kinds of shame go away. But in the moment, what happens? Our ears get red, our face gets red, we look down. It doesn't matter whether we're 6 or 66. We don't want to talk about it. Some of us, I believe, can be ashamed even just thinking about shameful events that happened 20 or 30 years ago. Isn't that right? You see, by not embracing Jesus Christ, you will be ashamed 
The only way to avoid shame is to have Jesus. Think about that the next time you're ashamed when at lunch at your desk you bow your head to pray and someone walks in and goes, oh, pray it again, are we? (laughs) And makes fun of you. You see, it's not the shame here that matters. It's shame before the living God. But it's not just shame. It's eternal contempt. And this kind of contempt, the actual root of the word is to repel, as in to be repelled by something. It's the kind of visceral reaction you have, for example, perhaps maybe your wife likes a sort of food that that you just can't abide. You don't even like to be in the house with the smell of it. And you walk in and you say, I'm out of here. You can't even be in the same room with it. That is what those who are not resurrected to eternal life will be like. They will be seen for what they are, for they will only have filthy rags. They may think that they are as white as snow, but everyone will know the stench of the rags of death. This is the truth of the resurrection. We've seen here the certainty of the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection. And now let's look at verse 3 where we see the blessing of the resurrection because there will be indeed a great division. And that division will be hard for those. It will be impossible to bear for those who do not know Christ. But what of us who know the Lord Jesus? What of us who have put our trust and our faith in Him? What will life be like? In verse 3, And to those who are wise... And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Do you see what life is like for those who are blessed for the resurrection of life? Do you see first that it is the fruit of God's work in their life? You see, they will be made wise. They will be made to shine. This word here for wise has the connotation of understanding the work of God. It's the same word that we saw in Daniel chapter 9, verse 13, where we talked about gaining insight by the truth of God. And again in Daniel 9, chapter, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 25, to go out and to know and to understand what is going on. It's what we saw in chapter 11, verse 33. How the wise among the people shall make many to understand. This is a kind of wisdom that comes from God. It is a knowledge that helps us to put the pieces of the puzzle together. It is what we have been doing in Daniel 12. How we walk up to the big, giant, golden stick and we see it for what it is because it's a piece in the greater puzzle. How we are cast into the lion's den and we know that God is with us because it's a part of the greater puzzle. This is being wise. And we all know where this wisdom comes from. The psalmist tells us, and so does the author of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You see, those who are wise are those who fear the Lord and whom the Lord has put His stamp upon. Because you see, there's another aspect here to this phrase, many. Oftentimes in the Scriptures, many refers to the people of God. 
As in the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. You see, those who are wise are those whom the Lord has given His life for a ransom. And how are they marked? Well, they're marked by a change in what they look like, who they are. They shine in the midst of the world. But they also are marked by their behavior. Because you'll notice that these wise are not wise people who sit up in some large ivory tower ignoring everyone else. No. What do they do? They turn many to righteousness. You see, those who are wise, those who are the people of God, those whom God has set His mark upon, those who are resurrected to eternal life, are a part of a family. And just like human families desire to grow and prosper, so the family of God desires to grow, to see others brought into the fold, to rejoice. This is the wise. They will turn others to righteousness. But we also need to remember that we will be changed in the midst of all of this. I need to tell you a hard truth that I'm sure you're at least on some level aware of. The world cannot be fixed. I don't care how much money you spend on defense protecting us from enemies. I don't care how much money you spend on education to give us knowledge. I don't care how many natural resources we find to fuel us. This world can never be fixed. It is broken beyond all repair. But there is something else. This world can be recreated. This world can be redone by God. And the beginning of that is the resurrection. He's not just going to fix you so your tennis elbow doesn't bother you anymore. He's not just going to tweak you a little bit so you're bold in speaking the gospel. He is going to take you and completely renew you in the image of His Son so that you shine reflecting His glory. Do you remember that image when Moses came down from the mountain? And the people said, Moses, put something over your face. We can't see anything. Moses shone because he reflected the glory of God. And you see, that's our hope. That we would be changed into the image of the Son. And that as Jesus says in in Matthew 13, verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And that is a permanent estate. You don't need to worry about that going away. You don't need to worry about scratches on the stainless steel counter that dull it. You don't need to worry about the buff and the polish doesn't make the car twinkle like it used to. It is an eternal state, being like Christ. What a blessing that God gives to us in the resurrection. Well, where do we go from there? Or better yet, how do we get to a knowledge of that? How do we begin to understand God's purpose for our life? How do we understand the truth of the division? How do we understand the depth of the sorrow that those who reject Christ will have? Verse 4 gives us some insight into that. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Let's take the last half of that verse first. 
The knowledge that we have of the resurrection is not ordinary knowledge. Where will you go for hope today? Will you run to and fro? Will you run over here to money and see if there's help? Will you run over here to Dr. Phil and see if he has words of wisdom? Will you run over here to a vacation and try and relax on the beach? Will you run over here to a schooling curriculum? Will you run over here to friendships? No. Because in that day, many will run to and fro, run everywhere, and find nothing. You see, I think Daniel here is paraphrasing the great prophet Amos. In Amos 8, verse 12. How after Amos tells us, after the famine of the word of God, what happens is, when there is no more word in the land, they wander from sea to sea, and from north to east, they shall run to and fro, same words. To seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. You see, God has given to us his revelation. And if we are too proud to go there, we can flit to and fro and never find answers. There'll be no rest. There'll be no real peace. Because you see, the only place that we can find real answers is in the scriptures. And oftentimes, we need to be reminded of that with a loudspeaker. You know, especially those among us who are younger. And we think we have our whole life ahead of us, and there are so many things we don't know yet. We haven't yet been to college. We haven't learned what it's like to live on our own. We haven't learned what it's like to be the, the one who pays the mortgage. Not very fun. We haven't learned what it is like to have to have authority over others. And you see, we think something will happen. Something magically will drop in and then it'll all click. I don't know now, but I'm sure it'll all click. Perhaps even you look up and you see your parents and you say, they seem to know what's going on there. They've got everything under control. The problem is you don't see them on their knees at night. You don't see them when they're not sure what to do, when they have to go to the Lord. I will tell you that your parents do not have it all together. And if you think you do, you're in more trouble than you want to be. You see, you cannot find the knowledge of God out here, there, and everywhere. Where can you find it? Where can you know where the division is? Where can you know how you can have eternal life? Where can you know that the great prince is defending you? You can only know it through God's word. And that's why Daniel is told to shut up the book and to seal the words. So many often look at this and see that Daniel is taking this and making it secret. If so, let me tell you, he didn't do a very good job of it. Because it got put into the Old Testament and everybody was able to read it. I think it's better to think that those interpreters have it wrong. God wasn't telling Daniel to take this great source of comfort and life and hide it. Is that what you do with your light of yours? Kids, do you hide it under a bushel? No. You set it on a candlestick that all may see. And you see, these clauses, I think, are parallel. And what's happening here is God is telling Daniel to seal this up, to shut it so that it is kept safe and secure and available for everyone. There is an illustration that we see in the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32. 
Jeremiah buys a piece of land from a relative. And what he does is he seals up the original of the deed, puts it in a clay pot, and buries it. So it's kept safe. And then he keeps a copy out so everyone can read. But if someone tampers with the copy that's open, they can dig up the pot and say it was tampered with. You see, this is what happens. The words that are being sealed here are the entire book of Daniel. It's an entirely a book written for our comfort. Because you see, the real hope of the Christian is not getting through death. The real hope of the Christian is the end of death. To use one of those illustrations, your real hope is not crossing Jordan and getting safely on the other side. Your hope is the day in which Jordan dries up. That river of death in the imagery that we've seen so often. This is what the resurrection tells us. It's not just that I cheat death or I get past death. It's that God has conquered death itself. What a glory that is. So in conclusion, I'll leave you with three questions to think about this afternoon. How do you think the ungodly will bear the shame of that day? Unless you think, well, that's okay, I'm trusting in Jesus. I don't have to worry about that shame. Have you ever stopped telling someone about Jesus because you thought it might embarrass them? You sensed an opportunity, but you might be embarrassed? Think of the shame at that day. And be bold for your Lord. The second question, to those of you that are in the midst of strife and trouble, and trials. How will the people of God not be comforted on that day? How is that possible? Every tear will be dried. The Lord will raise up His people. And then the last question that encompasses those two, how will God not be glorified? It's impossible. This is the God we serve. The God who has power over death itself.